Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Three days after University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill was forced to resign following her December 5th testimony when she was unable to tell Congress whether calls on campus for the genocide of Jews violated the school's conduct policy, Harvard is standing by its president, Claudine Gay, who faced mounting donor pressure to resign for similar reasons in addition to new allegations of plagiarism. Although Harvard has reportedly lost a billion dollars in donations since Gay's now infamous testimony, it announced in a statement this week that Gay would be keeping her job. The announcement came after the Washington Free Beacon revealed 20 potential instances of plagiarism in Gay's published academic work, which survived an independent review conducted by Harvard, which found, quote, no violation of Harvard's standards for research misconduct, merely a few instances of inadequate citation, close quote. Walter, is all this a substantive fight over the future of American institutions, or are we more in pro-wrestling kayfabe territory, news or faux news? I'd say this. If UPenn had as much money as Harvard, and Harvard needed money as much as UPenn, Harvard would have fired its president and UPenn would have kept its. Uh, This is entirely about how responsive Ivy League colleges are to donors. It has absolutely nothing to do with any principle, any discernible principle. Gotcha. All right, our second story. Benjamin Netanyahu spoke with Vladimir Putin this week, expressing his displeasure with the, quote, anti-Israel positions taken by Russia at the UN and with the Kremlin's increasingly close cooperation with Iran. That cooperation has deepened since the start of Russia's war in Ukraine as Moscow has leaned on Iran to supply it with cheap battlefield drones to supplement the efforts of Russian defense manufacturers, which have struggled to source Western-made components for aircraft and weapon systems. In late November, according to Iranian media, Russia returned the favor, finalizing agreements for the delivery of Russian-made Sukhoi fighter jets and attack helicopters. So... Bibi apparently expressing his displeasure to Putin, who's lately thrown in with the axis of resistance, Walter. Was this week's Bibi Putin call news or faux news? Now, it's it's movement down a predictable trajectory. Um, For Putin, uh, a nice big war in the Middle East is a lovely gift. And I can't think of any reason why he wouldn't support Iran at this point. He did want an alliance, a, a close relationship with Israel, but but that's gone. I think the place to watch is actually going to be Syria, because that's where Israel has been carrying out military operations to prevent Iran from supplying Hezbollah and other militias with with advanced equipment, uh, and it's where there are a lot of Russian forces. In the past, the Russians and the Israelis have managed to deconflict. The Israelis have kind of warned the Russians where they were going. Um, the Russians didn't tip off the Iranians and everything went fine. We don't know, you and I don't know, uh, whether that arrangement is still holding up. If it is, then the BB Putin call is sort of theater, perhaps. If it isn't, we could be on the brink of something much more dangerous in the Middle East. Two quick follow-ups there. I mean, so the call between Bibi and Putin was made public, which, you know, presumably at least one plausible reason was that would be that Putin would like to be seen as a player in Gaza and maybe as having more leverage with both sides, Israel and Hamas, than America does. 
do you get the sense that he he's been successful in that or is America still really just kind of the predominant outside player here? Putin has zero leverage over Israel and he has zero, zero leverage over Hamas. And there's nothing in the call that would change that impression. And then for Bibi, if there is, you know, a coming war in southern Lebanon with Hezbollah, would Russian cooperation over the airspace there mean anything? Or is that really limited to Syria and Russia doesn't have the same kind of... Yeah, Russia isn't, has not been a player over Lebanon much. Um, the real issue there is Bibi doesn't have, Israel does not have enough ammunition for the war in Gaza without American support, much less adding on a war in Lebanon. So... Um, you know, the, the question is whether Biden would back an Israeli war in uh, in the north. All right. Our final story of the week. Homeownership has become a pipe dream for more Americans, even those who could afford to buy just a few years ago. It is now less affordable than any time in recent history to buy a home, according to The Wall Street Journal. And the math isn't changing anytime soon. Home prices are not expected to go back to pre-pandemic levels. The Federal Reserve, which started raising rates aggressively early last year to curb inflation, hasn't shown much interest in cutting them. Mortgage rates slipped to about 7% last week, the lowest in several months, but they're still more than double what they were two years ago. Typically, high mortgage rates slow down home sales and home prices should soften as a result, but not this time. Home sales are falling, but prices are still rising. There just aren't enough homes to go around. Walter, news or phone news? The phone news and the news are, are, are woven together so thickly there, it's hard to sort them out. First of all, people under the age of 40 are writing about this like as if this was had never happened before and is probably the end of the world as we know it. People who remember past episodes of inflation and high interest rates in the U.S. will remember in, uh, mortgage rates of like 18 to 21 percent in the late 70s, early 80s. As far as I can re recollect, the republic survived and the housing market adjusted. Uh, we have people sort of get this idea in their heads that that anytime the status quo deviates from, you know, interest rates go up, oh my gosh, a catastrophe, interest rates go down, it'll be the ruin of the nation, home prices go up, that world is on fire, home prices go down, we're all going to die. All right, that's that's the nature of financial journalism. One cure for this is to live long enough so that you've been around the merry-go-round so many times that you say, oh, oh, this is some young kid who doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay, got it. Now, that having said that, there are some problems with the housing market. And in my mind, uh, the biggest one is connected to sort of structural and it's connected to the whole commuter thing. We've talked in the past about how this daily salmon-like migration, the great migration of tens of millions of commuters in and out of inner cities, you know, is one of the most environmentally destructive, socially destructive things that we do in this country or in the world. But um, what it also does is it really messes with the housing market because all the really good housing is going to be close in, short commutes. Nobody wants to commute two hours a day. So that means there's going to be these narrow bands, relatively narrow bands of really expensive housing that everybody wants. And people who don't have a lot of money 
are going to have to choose between living sort of six twenty somethings to a studio apartment to live in glamorous Manhattan or having long commutes to be out to where you can actually afford some space. And I'm afraid that the sort of evil gremlin of geometry actually makes that problem very difficult to solve as long as we remain bound hand and foot to this notion of, you know, mid 20th century commuter existence is the ultimate peak of man's existence. I think if we can move away, you know, I think if I were running this country, if I were in charge, we'd see accelerated work on really encouraging people to learn how to do the working from home situation, companies to manage it better, find workarounds for some of the real problems that do exist so that a lot of people would only have to go into work maybe once a week, which would open up a lot of relatively cheap housing for people so that you, you know, you could actually have some choices in life. Uh, the other uh, thing that, that I would do, I think would be is I'd actually work on whether you can integrate smart roads with self-driving cars or relatively self-driving cars so that at least for the great part of your commute, you might be on a on a highway where your your car is getting guidance from the, you know the combination of the computers on your car and the road sensors and stuff are getting you safely through that so that this becomes working time or whatever time not uh, lost time on the freeway i think you did a few things like that you could actually end up with another generation of americans being able to own their own homes you know, politically, there are a lot of obstacles to it. But in fact, there is a way. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So in the last couple of months, we've talked a lot about kind of traditional Western or European anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in the Arab and Islamic world anti-Israel feeling on the left and the right in the context of American domestic politics. One division we haven't covered much yet is the politics of Zionism within the American Jewish community and how the contemporary divisions we see, let's say, between your typical APAC member somewhere in the middle versus J Street on the left and the If Not Now movement on the far left, and then, you know, maybe your Zionist Organization of America members on the right what are these divisions exactly, and, and where do they come from in, in Jewish and American history? American Jews have always been divided over questions of Zionism and um, their feelings about Israel. The, the period sort of between about 1948 and 1978 probably saw the highest degree of American Jewish support for Israel, but even American Jews who've been supportive of Israel have not necessarily been Zionist in the way that uh, Theodor Herzl would have understood Zionism or the most of the Zionist pioneers understand Zionism. You know, Zionism is not just refugee Zionism or asylum Zionism. I need a place to go in case everything gets really bad where I am. It's this idea that, that to be fully Jewish, one needs to inhabit a Jewish state where everything shuts down or a lot of things shut down on Saturday, where Jewish holidays are national holidays, you know, where Jewish values are, are the kind of common currency of the culture. 
And very few American Jews have felt a strong pull toward that kind of Zionism. And most of them who have, have gone to Israel. So that there's a kind of a, a self-selecting process here where people like Bess Meyerson, Golda Meir, uh, end up in Israel and the vast majority of American Jews don't. Then you've got different ideas about what a Jewish state should look like, what it should be. Reform Judaism, which has historically been the largest theological current among American Jews, actually begins with a denial, a condemnation of Zionism as a travesty against the spirit of Judaism. Because for Reformed Jews, the exile, the Jewish dispersion into the rest of the world after the Roman era uh, is not, not necessarily a punishment from God, but Jews are kind of sent out to the world to teach them, having learned at home, they now go out into the world to spread the principle of ethical monotheism, set an example, teach the nations how you're supposed to live. And so for the Reformed Jews, a Jew is not someone who is longing to get back to true home in Jerusalem. It's somebody who's found a true home somewhere else. And a lot of American Jewish synagogues are actually called temples. And that conveys the idea that this is not, you know, the temple was the one temple in Jerusalem. And by calling your house of worship a temple, you're saying, no, no, no. I don't need to go to Jerusalem. I'm home. This is my promised land. And I would say for a lot of American history, that was the leading sense, certainly among American Jewish intellectuals and political activists and successful Jews. Uh, the notion of a Jewish nationalism tends to come among the Russian Jews, the Eastern Jews, who arrived later to the U.S. and for um, much of the 20th century are basically too busy pushing handcarts on the Lower East Side to be effective um, public intellectuals and, and political spokesmen. And during the 1920s and 30s, you actually couldn't raise money in most synagogues in America for the Jews in Palestine unless you explicitly said, this is not a political thing. We're not trying to help create a Jewish state. We're just trying to support poor Jews in Palestine. So it's not surprising. And I mean, obviously, after, during and after the Holocaust, uh, American Jews are pretty deeply convinced that a Jewish state is a necessity. But it's refugee Zionism, not national Zionism, so to speak. And it, to some degree, Israel was the, was the economy class seating for Jews who didn't make it into first class in the United States. So that concept, Israel as a refugee asylum, becomes very popular. And then, and of course, American Jews loved it when Israel won wars. And instead of being persecuted and beaten down, Jews were standing proud and strong and tall. This was great. And then when under Nixon, Israel and the United States start to become aligned internationally, that's even better. The uh, fights in the 70s over Soviet Jews, giving them the right to, to emigrate to Israel, that tended to unite American Jews. Again, not over Zionism per se, but over this notion of refugee Zionism. And I think it's, it's not at all surprising that as Israel has become stronger 
as fewer Jews are seen as helpless refugees, and as one begins to ask ethical questions about what's happening with the Palestinians and those sorts of questions, these tradi the traditional skepticism of much of the American Jewish community about, you know, well, you know, is Israel doing it right? What does it mean to be a Jewish state? Does surely that means upholding Jewish values? Doesn't mean, you know, building a big army to protect Jewish security? Perish the thought. So you start getting all of that stuff back in the mix. Now, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens after October 7th when many American Jews, I think, have been having increasing concerns about their future in the United States. I mean, we've had a since World War II, we've seen a, a remarkable decline in anti-Semitism in American life. But in the last few years on the left and on the right, there have been some pretty troubling signs of a growing. I mean, there's always been some, but it seems to be growing and gaining a certain public acceptability. And you're seeing more um, celebrities or, you know, famous, God help us, professors uh, endorsing some of these ideas. You know, the, the concept of refugee Zionism may be acquiring a new relevance as well as a sense among American Jews after the October 7th attacks, that Israel actually is in real peril. It's not a regional superpower that dominates all that it sees vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Uh, Israel actually faces existential threats. So the American Jewish community, I think, is in flux over this. But it's always fun for me to remember that in the 19th century, when the New York Times was owned by a Christian family, it was ardently pro-Zionist. When it was bought by a Jewish publisher, it became rabidly anti-Zionist. So, uh, the, you know, this idea that all the Jews are, you know, totally determined to go out there and fight for Zion, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a rosy-tinted picture, I think. You know, the way you hear about the kind of future of American Jewish support for Israel or the way it's been talked about among most American Jews for most of my adult life is kind of, a, a you know, a panicked projections of birth rates of certain kinds of Jews. So, you know, the Orthodox have many children, the Reform have very few. Eventually, this is going to polarize American Jewish support for Israel and instead of having a more even what they see as a more even distribution of, you know, kind of 70% American Jews at least voting for Democrats, it's going to, you know, flip maybe to majority American Jewish support for the Republican Party if for no other reason than you have more conservative leaning orthodox American Jews than than reform Jews. Do you think there's is there anything to that? And I was at a, a dinner the other night where one of the speakers uh, came up with a great wisecrack. What's the difference between a liberal Jewish billionaire and Donald Trump? Trump has Jewish grandchildren. It's the American Jewish story right there. <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, we're, it's in flux. It's, it's an experiment. The United States of America, for the first time in 2000 years, really gave Jewish citizens... You know, as George Washington put it, you're here by right. It's not about toleration. You're citizens. And so this kind of full citizenship, sometimes in theory, but often in practice as well as theory. And how does that, what does that do to a Jewish community when you don't have the walls of the ghetto 
keeping you in. And at the same time, the, the laws of the United States give no power to the religious authorities within the Jewish community over individuals in that community. So it's not like Israel where you have to get a religious wedding or a religious divorce. You can, in America, you can be as Jewish as you like, or you can barbecue pork on Yom Kippur. And to the government, it makes no difference at all. So what, what happens to a Jewish community that lives in those conditions? It's new. And everybody would like to say, oh, well, you know, I can go back and look at 17th century Netherlands or something like that, as we all do. But it, um, it's an experiment. And in the same way, of course, Israel is an experiment where you have Jews from cultures all over the world, from Haredis to total atheists. And, you know, what will what what does the Jewish culture of an independent Jewish state look like after three, four, five generations? The Jews, the Jewish people is a very old people, but right now it is living under very new and unprecedented conditions. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. We're continuing with our listener requests. This one's from Brian in New York, who points out that, Walter, you've mentioned on previous episodes two road trips you've taken in your life, one across America when you were growing up, the other across Central or Eastern Europe in the 1980s. So to the extent Brian's right that you're an authority on road tripping, he wants to know, in your expert opinion, what is the single greatest road trip he can plan, either stateside or abroad? Well, if you're an American and you have not done the transcontinental, Amer you know, great American road trip, you need to do that. Now, admittedly, I did it a long time ago. We paid 17.9 cents a gallon for gas in Los Angeles at that time. So in some respects, it was a lot easier than it is today. But, uh, to you know, just to see this country, the immensity of the country, the variety of the country. The route we took was we went out across a kind of northern route uh, going to the Black Hills, Mount Rushmore, Yellowstone, and out to you know Mount Rainier and the coast there, then down the Pacific Coast Highway and came back uh, along the Grand Canyon, Texas, a more southern route. And that was a fantastic experience. Uh, we only... Uh, I only had the car totally break down once. This was my dad's old VW Bug we took. And it, um, it, it the car wouldn't start unless you pop-started it in second gear. So you had to push it along. We, we always had to look for a place where we could park facing downhill so that we could get the car started. And then in Kingman, Arizona, the engine just died. But... All of the, we were, you know, I was 18. I was the oldest of the group. But all of those adventures, all of the encounters with such people as the sheriff of Arco, Idaho, who was very skeptical about our legitimate bona fides on that trip, and some other folks like that, it was to this day, I feel that that trip was an important learning experience for me. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom, and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.